as a church, we have advocated for and we have um, elevated and talked quite a bit through the years in our core values about the need to equip families. The need to equip families. And so uh, what we have found is, uh, and let me just give you a little backstory to understand where I've come to the conclusion on this. Um, I, I served for years as a couple years as a youth pastor and then many years as a college pastor. And I wrestled with um, seeing kids that were solid growing up uh, in good families, very involved in our church, and we had some great ministries. It wasn't all banana splits and, you know, parties and, and goofing off in our, um, in our youth ministries. I mean, some solid teaching the word, taking kids on missions trips, lots of good stuff. But yet many of them would still fall away and, and, and walk away from God when they graduated from, um, from high school. And many of them, quite frankly, they, when they graduated from high school, they also graduated from the youth group, which was their church. Okay? The youth group was their church, and they graduated from it. And so they, there was no reason to go to the big church you know, with the big people because that really wasn't, music's not what they are used to, and the ministries you know, didn't look as fun and vibrant, and it really wasn't all about trying to meet them um, and wasn't all about um, catering and trying to allure them and get them in and draw the crowd anymore. And so it just wasn't as, as cool and hip. And, and many of those kids eventually come back around. Um, too many of them do not. And so I, I started to observe that and watch that and trying to understand what's the deal, what's the problem there, what, what is happening. And then certainly as we started to have our own children, um, we began to think through, okay, how do we raise our own kids to walk with Jesus? What does that look like? I remember Josh McDowell saying years ago, um, he made the statement that if we raise our children today, this was probably eight years ago, and it's more so, this is more true today than it was then. Uh, then it was almost a prophetic statement. Now it's, it's scary how true this is. If you raise your children the same way you were raised, you will most likely lose them. If you raise your kids the way you were raised, you will most likely lose them. The stakes are different. The game, well, stakes are similar. The, the game is different. The challenges are unique to our day and age. And we have got to think about this stuff. And the reality is, most parents don't. You just jump into the game, start having kids, and we just, we, it, like I was joking earlier, the bullets start flying, life gets crazy, and it's just, you're trying to endure, trying to get through. And so you do what you saw your parents do. And by default, we do what we've learned from other people and the little bit of stuff that we gather from whatever sources. And we have this hodgepodge of parenting philosophies that we've gathered. And at the end of the day, we do what we know and we just, we hope for the best and we roll the dice and we hope that our kids are going to walk with Jesus and we try to get them to church some. And, uh, you know, we, that, that's part of the plan. But is that really enough? Can you undo um, in two hours a week, if that, what is poured into our children throughout the rest of the, the, the every given week? And the answer is no. You cannot. Now, nobody can guarantee that anybody's child will follow Christ and live for Christ's glory for a lifetime. You can't guarantee that. There's kids that grow up. Many of you have testimonies of your own story where you're the first generation, maybe in several generations, that followed Christ. Maybe your parents didn't walk with the Lord, and God saved you despite that. God does great things, and He is sovereign, and He can save anybody. But there is a statistical 
uh, reality that when kids are raised a certain way, you can create an environment and you can pour into them a biblical worldview that will significantly increase the number of kids that are going to walk with Jesus because they have been raised with an understanding and a worldview to where they understand their need for Christ and their worldview is shaped from a biblical worldview and their lives, the vast majority of them, they're going to walk with Christ. Again, we can't guarantee, but nonetheless, uh, there is a significant percentage where uh, that, that increases. And so the question for me is how can I raise my kids in such a way that I give them a biblical worldview and then I uh, create the best environment possible for them to flourish, for them to come to a point where they know that they need Christ, for them to repent and trust in Jesus and be saved, and for them to live their lives for Christ's glory the rest of their life. That, that's the goal. So we're going to try to give some principles. This is not an exhaustive uh, series. And so the next, t- today and the next two weeks, and then certainly the labs at night will also give some more stuff um, that will hopefully help you in this journey. But I, I would challenge you, I would pray, I would beg you, beg you to consider these things. Consider, wrestle with these truths. Begin this conversation. And understand that this isn't like uh, we deliver and I'm going to give you in the next 35 minutes everything you need to know and then you're, we're good. No, no, this is starting a conversation. This is seeding the conversation. And so my goal as a pastor is to come beside you and to help shepherd you, to equip you, to not to just give you everything you need to know for 35 minutes, 40 minutes, whatever, but to, to come beside you and help you. And our goal for one another is to learn from one another. There's people from lots of different generations that have a lot of life experience in this room. And we need everybody in every season of life to come together. And as the body of Christ, I believe that we can raise a generation that's different. I believe that we could see God do great things and we could get to a place in Cross Life Church where we have a, where we have a <clears throat> system of ministry and a pattern for raising kids where we're not just raising kids, uh, we're not just rolling the dice hoping that they're going to walk with Jesus because we got a couple good programs or whatever, but, but we are raising kids to, have, to be rooted in Christ, to develop wings, to fly and have some independence in their understanding the relationship with Christ, and eventually when they graduate, to launch them out as missionaries, hence the name Launching Arrows. I, I want you to understand that Christian parenting should not be defensive. And that's problem number one. We parent defensively. We try to protect our kids, and we try to box them in, and we try to eliminate certain things, and we try to deal with whatever fires arise, and we've got to get past that. I, I'm not advocating for defensive parenting. Not that there's not a place to protect our kids. But I'm advocating for offensive parenting. I'm advocating for us to realize that Jesus said that he is going to establish his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so understand that our kids are to be thrust out, to be sent out, to be launched out as arrows in the hands of a mighty warrior. That's what God's word says. And we don't treat them like arrows, and we don't prepare them like arrows, and we don't launch them like arrows. And so we have got to rethink this one. And so I hope that, that God will grant us through His grace in the next several weeks uh, some insights into this to where we could maybe set a different course and, and maybe put some more meat on the bones of what we've talked about as a church. Is this is what we want to do. Hopefully bring some clarity to that as we think through that more deeply. Most parents do not know how to function as their 
children's primary faith trainers. Most parents don't have a clue how to function as their child's primary faith trainer. They feel ill-equipped. They feel like they don't know. They don't have a master's degree in in, uh, children's ministry or youth ministry or whatever, so we really should leave that up to the professionals to do it because I don't feel equipped to do that myself. And the reality is you've got to be equipped to do it. You are in the most strategic place to pass on your faith to your kids and to their, their kids. And so you, you've got to step up. You are in that place. Second thing is most parents are ill-equipped to deal with behavioral issues exposed by um, attempts to have more formative family time. So once a parent says, okay, I'm going to be my kid's fi- primary faith trainer. I'm going to start to pour into them. And you start to spend more time with your kids. This happens every summer when kids get out of school. The more time you spend with your kids, the more you start to see their flesh and their issues and their immaturities and their sin and their behavioral issues. And, uh, and that becomes difficult. And the best thing to do is to, you know, it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. I can't wait till they get back in school so I don't have to deal with it. You know, and we want to get rid of them. When, really, when they're with you and those things are exposed, now you're in the best position to deal with it. Okay, that behavior doesn't go away because they're in school. That behavior doesn't go away because they're in a youth class or a children's class or whatever at church. The behavior's still there. It's just gone underground. And, And the more you're around your kids, the more you're in a position to observe and deal with the behavioral issues that arise. And again, we want to, in the next several weeks, give you a couple things to try to help you understand the importance of dealing with those things in formative and corrective discipline but then also, uh, so I want to give you see the importance, but also give you some tools to begin thinking about how to do that. But, but understand, the enemy does not want your family to have dinner together. The enemy does not want your family to open the Bible and read it together. You're, you're, the enemy does not want you to memorize three verses once a month for your family. The enemy does not want you to discuss what happens and the kids are learning um, back here, the younger kids. Um, your en- the enemy does not want you to talk as family as your kids are getting a little older and they're hitting fifth, sixth grade, whatever, and they're in here now. Uh, the enemy doesn't want you talking to your kids about what did you guys learn? What is God saying to you this morning? But Billy, we, got, we, we need to start. Jesus needs to become the center of our homes. Now, when you look through the scriptures, when you look through the scriptures, you find out that there's... Um, there's not a lot. There is a lot, but there's not a lot of information about parenting, particularly in the New Testament. I mean, in the New Testament, there's just a couple primary verses, Ephesians chapter 6, uh, 1 and 2, I think, and then um, Colossians has a verse. And it, it basically, fathers, you know, don't provoke your children to wrath, um, but raise them in the um, nurture and admonition of the Lord or something like that, instruction, teaching, you know, but, but be careful with them. Don't, don't, you know, don't discourage them by being too harsh with them. And that's kind of all that's said there. Children, submit to your parents. Parents, be patient with them, um, particularly dads. And, and then that's it. So you say, well, why does the Bible not give us more information about it? Well, it actually, it does. It gives us lots. And so Deuteronomy chapter 6 is, is the first place that we're going to look to begin to form a biblical understanding of parenting. And let me give you one more thought. Parenting, Christian parenting, or parenting in general, is, is simply about discipleship. And I would contend that the whole Bible is about discipleship. It's about leading people to, and by the way, we, just, we define discipleship as a church. Being a disciple 
as following Jesus, right, being changed by Jesus. Thank you for being bold and confident in that. Um, Following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, and being on mission with Jesus. And Jesus said, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. Follow me, be changed by me, I'm going to make you fishers of men. So we would say, following Christ, submitting to the lordship of Christ in your life, that's the beginning of being a disciple. And the second part of that is being changed by Jesus, and that's the gospel. The gospel saves us, but also changes us and transforms us. We're going to get into that more next week, uh, in the next couple of weeks. How does the gospel change us as parents and, and in our parenting? How does the gospel change us? And then being on mission with Jesus. And so again, that's the goal in parenting, is we want our kids to follow Christ We want them to understand that the gospel is their greatest need, and that's the way they can change. And we want to launch them out to be on mission with Jesus, and that's the whole point of the whole Bible. And so I would say that the whole Bible is a book about parenting and about discipleship. And it happens in families, and it can happen in the church body and the community, but discipleship is the primary role and goal of parents. It's not just to raise kids. You are to disciple your children. That is your God-given duty and responsibility. And so if you don't understand what discipleship is, you you need to learn that. You need to figure that one out. And we're going to try to help you. But that's the goal. And so God's plan for discipleship in the Bible is precisely clear. His plan for discipleship, particularly in families, is in Deuteronomy chapter 6 in the Old Testament. And here's what it says, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. Now let me pause there and give you the the backstory. Uh, Deuteronomy is given, this is the second giving of the law. Okay, God's already given the law once. Leviticus, we're going to talk about that in um, September and go through a series in Leviticus, the scariest book in the Bible. Um, we're, going to, we're going to tackle that one. Now, he's given them the law. He has delivered them from Egypt. They, were, they became a mighty nation in Egypt. They were in captivity and they were in bondage and God delivered them from captivity and bondage. But they had generations that grew up in a pagan culture with a limited understanding of God, but knowing there's one true God, and many of them faithfully continue to worship God to the degree they knew and had passed on from generation to generation. But God had not completely revealed his law to them. And so he leads them out, takes them to Mount Sinai, and there he gives them the Ten Commandments and the law and the instructions for how the temple is going to be built, the tabernacle is going to be built. And uh, he explains to them how they can have a right relationship, even though they're sinful and broken off from God, how they can have access to God and have a right relationship with God. And so because the way they grew up, and because they're about to inhabit a land full of people who are worshiping many gods, who are false gods, who are not alive, who are unable to save, and they are sacrificing babies to their gods, they're sacrificing humans to their gods. They are into all kinds of immorality and paganism and um, just evil stuff is happening in these peoples. And God is saying, you need to be different. And you need to understand that when you go and you immerse your families in that culture, there's going to be a temptation for you to adopt the belief systems of the culture that is there. Not to mention the culture you grew up with back in Egypt. And so I want to remind you before you go into this, who you are, 
and how you can know me and how we can have a right relationship. And if you do this stuff, you're going to have a blessed and awesome life. And if you don't do this stuff, you're going to have a really bad life. And so I'm going to set before you life and death. Choose life that you might live, not death. And that's the message of Deuteronomy. And so in chapter 6, he tells them, okay, you're going into this new place. And I want you to have some tools. I want you to understand how to relate to me. And so this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules the Lord God has commanded. So let me go through this really quickly. I don't have time to dive as deep into this as I'd like to, but quick principles from Deuteronomy 6. Number one, God has something to say. God has something really important. This is the commandment. This is the commandment. This is the most important thing you can teach your children. This is the first thing you will teach your children. Not the Ten Commandments. There is one commandment that is above all commandments, and the Ten Commandments really flows out of this one commandment. And if you mess this one up, you're going to mess up the rest of them. And so you've got to know this one commandment. Okay, here, what, what is the commandment? What's the deal? What is the important thing that every Jewish person would teach their children before they learned anything else? They would learn this commandment. Here it is. That you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all of his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Again, not only is this guy have something to say, but, but what he's about to share with them is going to have generational impact. The implications of this are not just for the week, for the month, for the year. They are generational. The seeds that you sow from this point forward are going to have general, generational impact for good or for bad on your families. And so understand, you're not just an individual trying to choose your own path, but your decisions Will, have, will affect literally hundreds, arguably thousands of people in your generations that will follow you. And so you better get this straight. God has something to say. The impact will be generational. The implications are generational. And so here it is. Verse 3. Be careful how you hear. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful. In other words, watch guard to do them, that it may go well with you. And that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. And these words that I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in the house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be on the frontlets between your eyes. They had little boxes they would put the law in. They'll be on their forehead. And you shall write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates. We'll pause there. So he says, I have something to say. The impact is going to be, the implications are going to be generational, but you need to be really careful what, that you hear what I'm, what I'm saying to you, that you absorb this, that you pass it on. And here's what it is. Here's the heart of the law. Our God is personal. It's the first thing. We do not believe in a theoretical, conceptual, distant, deistic 
God. Deism teaches there's a God and he made everything, but he's not personal. He's at a distance. And so he's not really intimately involved in your everyday life. And you don't talk to him daily and you don't look to him for life and for hope and for peace each moment. You don't pray to him about little things or big things for that matter because he started everything, he made everything, and it's all functioning. And so now you're kind of on your own. That's not the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is there is a God and he's a personal God. Hero Israel, our God. Not to be confused with all the other many little g gods that you guys have been exposed to and have been demonstrated to you. Those are false gods. Those are fake gods. Those are not real gods. There is a one God, and he's a real God, and he's a personal God. He's our God. He's our God. Number two, not only is he our God, but he is unique and he is unified. The Lord is one. He's our God, and he is one. Now, this is the implications of the Trinity, that God has, has, is one God, but he, is, he relates to us in three persons, okay? Now, again, I'm not going to be able to fully flesh that out in this moment, but understand that God is a triune God. There's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and so God is unified in that he is one God, but he, is, he is, expresses himself to us in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, who the Father sent, the Father willed that God the Son would create the world, according to Colossians chapter 1. And so Jesus is the one who everything that is came to being through Jesus. And so get this, he creates the world, and the world rejects Jesus, and Jesus is going to come back to judge the world. But Jesus, before he comes back to judge the world, he came first to die for the world and to pay the penalty that the world deserves to pay for denying him in his authority, Jesus comes to take our punishment so that we can avoid his judgment one day. And so Jesus, in obedience to the Father, comes to the earth, lives a perfect life, submits himself to the Father's plan, dies on the cross for us, is not forsaken and left in the grave, but the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, the power of the Holy Spirit, raises Jesus from the dead. Okay? And then God the Father has exalted Jesus to now every tongue and tribe and nation will one day bow their knees to Jesus when he comes back to judge all of creation. And when Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, he sent the Holy Spirit to come to be our comforter, to illuminate the truth to us, to help us see our need for Christ and convict us of sin and, and make the scriptures um, give us the ability to understand God's word and for it to come alive to us and to give us a new heart and to help us see our need for Christ and to grow us in a relationship with Christ. And for that matter, to help us parent, to help us change as parents and to help us parent. We have the comforter. We have the helper. We have the one who comes beside us. That's the Holy Spirit. And so God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, is the, they're one God, okay? Distinct personalities, but all equal, co-equal, with order, and this is the pattern for the home, and this is the pattern for life. And, and so God is one God. He's a personal God. <clears throat> he's unique, but he's also unified. And so we're told that. And then understand that God alone is worthy of all of our love and affections. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Now, that might be offensive to some of us. You think, well, I love my kids. I love my spouse. I love my whatever. And uh, I love God, but I love these things. 
The moment you cease to love God first and foremost, preeminent, first place, whatever it else is that you love that you elevate above God, that becomes an idol for you. And you can't love anything in a healthy way if you don't love God first. If you don't love God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul. One of the biggest problems with families today is that there are parents whose children are the idol of their home. And they love their children with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their might. They love their kids more than they love God. They love their kids more than they love their spouse. And the child is the center of their universe. And their child is no longer a gift given by God from God to be given back to God. But their child becomes the center of the universe. And that is not healthy for the child. And at that point, when the child becomes the idol, you can't give the child. You're not conditionally, uh, unconditionally loving that child anymore. You're putting conditions on that child, and you're putting hopes and aspirations and things on that child that that child was not created to be able to shell, uh, shoulder. Or same thing with our spouses. Or same thing with anything else that we elevate, and it becomes an idol. That, that's, that is a broken, um, a broken world view. And so we need to understand that we need to love the Lord our God with all our heart, which means our, for the Jewish mind, that was our mind, our intellect. That's where we would say, following Christ with our, with our minds, being changed by Jesus with our minds, um, with all of our soul, that's the person beneath us. That's the seat of desire, okay? So minds, hearts, and then with all our might. This is the, the, the force and the abundance of our life. This is the efforts of our life that we live for His glory. And so love God First and foremost, he is worthy of all our, our love. And then he gives a couple quick principles. Pass these things from generation to generation. He tells us how to do that. You've got to pass this from generation to generation. The way discipleship is going to happen is not through a program in the temple or the synagogue or the community. It's not through school system, clearly. It's not through uh, church even. It is through your family. It's around your table. And I'm going to give you some real simple. This is going to blow your mind. This is so simple. I, you know, a lot of times the biggest problems in our life are, are the most simple things. Uh, the solution is the most simple things. And I, a couple months ago, I, I was out in my car and um, rushed in. I was on a phone call and I was kind of distracted. And so I turned my car off and I jumped out of my car and I, I ran into the office and was doing some stuff. And then I think we had life group and had a cookout or something. I, something was going on. Our life group was meeting that night and it was just crazy afternoon. I had a couple hours to get a lot of stuff done really fast. And I jumped back in my car and my car doesn't start. In fact, the, like the key's like locked in the ignition. I can't get the keys out, and it's, it's messed up. And like, what in the world is the deal? And I'm so mad. I'm so frustrated. So uh, I, I stole David's keys, and I took his car, and I, I took the battery out of my car, drove it up to Advanced Auto Parts, had them check it. They said, your battery's great. looks wonderful because I thought my battery died. They said, no, your battery didn't die. It's wonderful. looks like it's really good holding the charge. Must be some other problems. I'm thinking, oh, it must be my... Um, must be my alternator or something else. And anyways, so I'm going through all the possibilities as a non-mechanic trying to figure out the problems with my car, making phone calls to tow truck companies, thinking, you know, I'm gonna have to get it towed somewhere and whatever. So trying to figure out how to navigate, get all the stuff done in the afternoon, running around crazy. It was nuts. And I finally thought when I got back, I had a couple minutes before I had to be the next thing. And I thought, let me just try one more time to see if I can figure this out. So I got back in my car, the key is still in the ignition because they were stuck and um, begin to play with a little bit, and I realized I had left it in drive. And all I had to do is put it back in park, 
magically the keys came out. And the problem was solved. You know, we're looking for this complicated stuff. Man, I don't have what it takes. To, I, don't, I don't know how I can disciple my kids. Man, you're laying this stuff down on me. And I thought we're a gospel-centered church where we're all about grace and love and we just need to trust Jesus and he'll do it in and through us. And we don't have, now you're laying laws down. I've got to like, disciple my kids. I don't have time to do that. I mean, I don't, how am I supposed to disciple my kids? It's not that hard. It's, not, it's really simple. Just put it back in park and it really is not that complicated. Here it is. You ready? He says, first of all, through the day, shall diligently teach your children. You shall talk with them when you sit in your house. That means through the day, sitting in your house. Second, he says, when you walk by the way, and I would like to modify that. I'd like to update that slightly. Most of us don't walk from point A to point B. We generally drive. Okay, you don't have to sell your car to disciple your children. You can, you can still do it in your car. All right, it's all right. And so today, we're driving. Well, teach them through the day. Secondly, teach them through the drive. When you lie down, teach them at dusk. And when you rise up, teach them at dawn. What do I teach them? Well, I'll give you two simple thoughts to write down next to these. Two ways of doing this. One is you've got to be intentional. You have got to be intentional. And so you might say intentional faith talks. Let's put that phrase out there. Hopefully that'll become a phrase that we can use a lot. Intentional faith talks. This is intentionally talking to your kids about what we learned today in Sunday school, what we learned as we read the scripture together, what we learned as we talked about some scripture, what we learned from just intentional God talks. So intentionally looking for opportunities to turn off the talk radio or the music or the whatever and to talk about God. As they share different stories, their challenges from the day or different things they're dealing with, talking them about how they can, you know, how, how does that steer them back to the, seeing their need for Christ and understanding how Jesus is their hope in the midst of that and Jesus can save them in that situation instead of running to other functional saviors, intentional God talks. And the second thing is God's sightings. God pops up in all kinds of ways in every day. And you just need to have your ears bent to where you're listening for and, and looking for that. And so often your kids are going to share a story from the day. Something, something, this happened, that happened, whatever. And there's an opportunity for you to speak into their life some things to give them some insight. To, hey, did you see how God did this? Did you see how God provided for this? Did you see how you worried about this thing that was going to happen? And, whatever? and then it was fine. And we prayed that Jesus would, would, would work it out. And then God, Jesus worked it out. Did you see that Jesus moved in your life? Did you see, did you see that God was speaking to you about this thing last week and then, or we read this, this verse this morning and talked about it and then it's the exact verse you needed today. God knew before the day began what you needed. Did you see that? It's for us, for kids to understand we have a personal God. Our God is unique and unified and he's involved in our lives and they need to learn that and the only way they're going to learn that is not by accident but by us intentionally talking about our faith in our relationship with Jesus and the Word of God with them regularly and helping them start to look for God's activity and movement in their lives. Faith talks, intentional, God's sightings. That's two simple ways in thinking about this through the day, through the drive. You got four shots every day. Beautiful when you lay your kids down to bed at night. That's, that's one of the greatest times just to crawl in their bed and to talk to them and to hear about the challenges from the day and the different things and just to pray over them. 
encourage them. Sometimes they just will share lots of stuff. It's a wonderful time. Be strategic with those times. God reveals himself, his identity to us. He gives us a prescription for the best life and the best future. And, and so let me under, help you understand this. And this is one of the problems with many Christians and how we've done parenting in the past. The Jews, instead of growing, instead of uh, growing their love for God, they made bigger boxes that they put on their foreheads and, they, uh, and for their hands, and they forgot the heart. Okay, they, they, they just were more grandiose in the religious forms and the stuff they did. And they made sure they took their kids to church and they did that stuff. But God wasn't about, it wasn't being talked about and, 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 and shared about and discussed. They weren't capitalizing on intentional faith talks and God sightings through the day, through the di- drive and at dusk and at dawn. They missed those opportunities. And so they had the form of religion. They missed the whole heart of it. And so literally a generation of them, they're about to conquer the, 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 the nation that they would inherit, Israel, the promised land. They're going to conquer it in the generation after that, Joshua's generation. Their kids are going to walk with God. But then the next generation, after they die, their next generation walks away from God. And we enter one of the darkest times in Israel's history, the period of Judges. There was a generation who knew not God. And they did what was right in their own eyes. And I contend that that is the generations, with us several generations, have been generations in American churches that do what's right in their own eyes and they don't know the God of their fathers and of their father's fathers. The first thing with the gospel is we begin to neglect it. It's not really important to us anymore. It's not really the center of everything. And, and, and then um, not only do we neglect it, then we begin to forget about it. So we move from, from not really, it's not really that important to where we just, we, we don't even remember what it is. And then the next thing is we find ourselves actually denying it. And I would say when you look at many people who have grown up in church or had some church background in our country, and certainly our country apart from that, um, the church in America, we have neglected and we have forgotten and now we are denying the gospel. We've got to recover that. It's got to become the center place. I want to take just the last couple minutes and I want to give you um, a couple other things to frame the unique seasons you have in your kids' lives. And think about these statements as we move forward in these next couple of weeks. Understand that part of when we say you, you can't forget the gospel and we don't want to deny it, we've got to get back to it, we didn't rediscover it, understand that behavior modification and teaching your children, them, to be good or righteous will not save them. Their hearts must be changed for them to be restored to God and delivered from their state of sin and separation to God. The thought for a lot of parents is we just need to teach our kids how to behave. And so we use a whole lot of godless parenting techniques that um, are all about behavior modification. I don't know if you know what that is. That's a, cl- that's a psychology term, behavior modification. And that is the same thing we use with like Pavlov's dog or with the rats and the cheese and the whatever. We teach them by rewards or by punishment what to do and where to go and how to live and how to not live and whatever. And we try to conform their, their lives to be good, reputable, moral people. But yet we don't really 
gun for the heart. We're not really dealing with the heart, which is their ultimate problem. And the problem with behavior modification is it begins at the wrong point. It assumes that your children and that all of us are born in basically good with a world with bad influences. And if we can parent in a way to help our kids navigate the bad influences and to feed the goodness that is in all of us, then our kids will have great lives and they can live wonderful, healthy, moral lives. And it is a lie and that will condemn your children to hell. Hell. I mean, I'm, I'm, I mean we're talking about eternity separated from God. What your kids need to know is that they have a heart, just like mom and dad, bent towards wickedness. Children are not born good. Okay, they're born sinful and separated from God. You don't ever have to teach a child how to be selfish or bad or to say, mine. It is inherent in their bent and their fallen sinful nature. And so we grow them, teaching them rules and rights and regulations and everything so that we can help them see their need for Christ and lead them to their need for a heart change. And wise Christian parents raise their children with the goal in mind that they are gunning for the heart. They're fighting for their hearts. They're trying to pour into them the word of God and their need for Christ and understand the gospel that at the earliest possible time that they will repent and trust in Christ as they see that they are hopeless and helpless apart from Jesus saving them and changing their heart. They've got to be born again. And so with that being said, we can and must hold our children responsible for their choices and actions. In other words, we discipline, certainly. Teaching them to counter their natural impulses rather than excusing them. So I'm not saying you don't discipline your kids. There aren't consequences and rewards. And it's not that that's not part of certainly the earliest years of parenting. It is important. But we can and must help them develop and maintain an informed, insensitive conscience by clarifying right from wrong and truth from error. You're not going to be able to help them see their need for Christ if they think that they're basically fine and they can do whatever they want. It doesn't matter. But when they understand that they break rules and they lie and they steal and they cheat and they blame and they do all of these different things and that that flows from their sinful nature and their broken heart that's bent towards selfishness and pride, just like Satan, that they want to be on the throne of their own life and run their own life and they are the center of their own universe and they've got to repent of that. You've got to teach them that. We should balance unconditional love for their person, for them as an individual, with conditional acceptance of their behavior. When you unconditionally accept all of your children's behavior, and you think it's cute, and you think it's funny, and we think it's, oh, it's just them, oh, it's just a stage, and we begin to excuse stuff, you are not unconditionally loving your child. You're not unconditional. You're not helping them. You're not helping them. We unconditionally love our children, but we certainly conditionally are in a position where we're going to accept or confront behavior that does not glorify God, but always with the bent of helping them see their need for Christ, not to just become more moral and good by their own efforts. They need Jesus, and this is a process. And so looking at this as a family, some, phrase, some phases and stages. So there's two windows of opportunity. You've got, um, 
looking at their age on the bottom line, you know, up to about seven-ish to 15 and on, and then look at their receptivity in those different stages. And so your receptivity in a kid's life is going to grow and it's going to peak and then it's going to start to drop. And so there's different unique challenges in each phase. And I just want to go over these. We're going to unpack these a little more deeply as we go through the series. And certainly uh, tonight and and next um, Sunday night, we're going to to get into this a lot more uh, in depth. But three things to remember, roots, wings, and the launch phase. So let me just give these to you briefly. Roots, first, it's the imprint phase. Highly teachable. They're, they're, they're accepting of their parents' teaching and influence. They're highly impressionable, teachable, and accepting of their parents' influence in their lives. Now, they'll bow up at times, and they'll, you know, no, I want to do it, no, I will. But at the same time, they just, they assume that their parent wants and loves them, and they want what's best for them, and so they believe their parents. They'll do, you could tell your kids crazy things, like um, there's a tooth fairy that delivers money when they have a tooth fall, and they'll believe you. You can tell them all kinds of things, and it, because they just, they believe you. They take it face value, they believe or we can teach them things and indoctrinate them and and impart in them with a biblical worldview and help them feed them with God's truth. Your kids' minds are sponges and they can soak up so much information. It is unbelievable. And so pour into their minds. Memorize the Word of God. Memorize um, catechisms. We have some Truth and Grace books out here that teach simple little catechisms. You can start with a two-year-old. Who made me? I, who made you? God made me. Why did God make you? For his own glory. And, and it goes on through this, just giving them a biblical worldview. And you can remember, they, do they, does a two-year-old understand that? No, they don't need to. They just need to pack it in their head, okay? Because this is the impressionable uh, imprint stage and you're helping them develop roots. And so just pack it in, pack it in, pack it in. Your kids can fill their brains with SpongeBob and media and whatever else, or they can fill their brains with the Word of God and with a biblical worldview and with truth. And so get them away from the television and other media things and make sure you're pouring into them a biblical worldview. The second phase is the wings phase. This is the impressions phase. This is where they start to question things. Not because they're trying to be rebellious. They're just, their brains are developing. And so now they don't just accept everything at face value. Now they're questioning the why aspect. Why am I supposed to? That's the why stage. That's a frustrating one as parents at times, but nonetheless, all of us can remember back to when our parents told us to do things but didn't explain why. We want to understand why. There's a point where the whys can be disobedience. But for the most part, it's just indicative of the stage. And so in the impression stage, beginning to question, challenge, but they're still highly impressionable and teachable. No more blind acceptance. They want to understand the whys behind their beliefs and their instructions. And so this is a also... That's time of high dialogue. You start talking about, and this is where the God talks and the, or the faith talks and the God sightings become critical because they're so open to understanding things. They're starting to connect dots and they're starting to understand things. They're starting to make sense. And so you start starting to make sense. And so you, you can try to parent in whatever philosophy you want, or you can teach with the grain the way the Bible has created, the way God has created humans and, their, and children to develop. And the way the Bible has given us is a pattern for development and how to do this in different stages, and, and it's going to be a lot more strategic. So roots phase, wings phase, and the goal is the launch phase. In the, in, in the launch stage, you're, you're going into a coaching phase, 
and your influence is going to start to drop off because they're becoming more in, in, independent. They're young adults. They're now they're starting to make their own decisions and, and they're dealing with their own consequences and they're paying some of their own bills and they're learning how to set aside their money and they're learning how to tithe and they're learning how to, to give and they're learning how to plan and they're learning how to be strategic with their time. They're learning consequences of bad decisions. And so in the coaching phase, parents' role shifts from teacher to coach. There's going to be a lot of challenges. There's going to be successes. There's going to be failures. There's going to be hard questions ahead. But the goal is for discipleship to continue and for them to begin to multiply their life into other people. Again, I began this by saying we define discipleship as knowing Christ and being changed by Jesus and being on mission with Jesus. And parenting is all about helping your children know Jesus and on mission with Jesus. And when we launch them out, we shift from just focusing on them to where hopefully they're in a position now when they are launched out as arrows in the hands of a mighty warrior they go out as a disciple of jesus continuing to be in process but having enough of an understanding of god and of jesus and of word to where now they can impact the lostness of the world by pointing other people to christ by seeing other people follow jesus and be changed by jesus and be on mission with jesus we take an offensive approach that we're going to launch out generation after generation after generation of missionaries that are going to live for Jesus, know Jesus, live for Jesus, and live for his glory. And that one day we will all gather in heaven, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, and there will be tribes and tongues and nations represented because we sent out children that went to unreached people groups in northern India or in parts of Africa or parts of of uh, South America, or we sent out children that went across the street or down the road or went to the workplace in, you know, in, the down, you know, in, our, in our city, and they begin to live for Christ's glory, and they begin to share Christ boldly with wisdom and seeing people following Christ, being changed by Jesus, on mission with Jesus. And we, at the end of the day, we know that we have lived for eternity, and we have invested in eternity, and we have not been distracted by the temporal pleasures of this world and the deception of the enemy trying to thwart us into trying to find our significance, our identity, and functional saviors of this world. But we raise kids that could see the difference. And Jesus was their savior. And Jesus was their passion. And Jesus was their glory. And that is the end that we labor, we strive, we pray, we serve, and we teach for. Let's pray.